Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a productive day. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Oden. Now, imagine that tomorrow morning, some high-priced workplace consultant shows up at your job. This consultant is there to conduct a talent review, an assessment of all the people in your organization, including you. Who is indispensable in your organization? Who is absolutely essential to the success of your organization? Who is notably dispensable? Who is easily replaced? And who are all the people in between? More importantly, what would this expert say about you? In today's podcast, we will talk about the art of being indispensable at work. And to have this conversation, I am joined by Bruce Talgan, who is an internationally recognized as a leading expert on young people in the workplace and one of leading experts on leadership and management. He is the best-selling author of 21 books. You heard that right, 21 books. An advisor to business leaders all over the world and a sought-after keynote speaker and management trainer. And as if this is all you know, not enough to keep him way too busy, he has a six-degree black belt. I don't know how you do all of this, you know, um, in karate. So, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Bruce Talgan. Bruce, welcome. Uh, uh, ben, thank you so much. It is an honor to be with you. And I'll tell you, you know, how I do it all. I type really fast. So that's how <laughs> I get the books written. Uh, and karate, you know, I just practiced karate since I was a little boy. So, you know, uh, it just uh, goes with the territory. Keeps me young. Wow. Keeps you young. I like that. I like that. I need to find something that's going to keep me young. Uh, I recently picked up boxing. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if I can do that. How long have you been doing the karate? 48 years, you said. Since I was seven years old. Yeah, I'm almost 55. And um, yeah, boxing is just like karate. So boxing and yoga, put those two together and, and you have most of karate. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll, actually, I've been thinking about yoga. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take that as a sign that I should pursue that as well. Now, normally when we have our guests on the podcast, we ask, um, you know, the question that I'm about to ask you. And the question, we call it the one, one, one. You know, what is the one book you wish you had read earlier in your career? Of course, assuming that this book is published at that point. Uh, and what is, what is the one habit you wish you had developed earlier as well? And what is the one value, could be a personal value, that you will not compromise no matter the cost. So one book that is one of my very favorite books is called Make Your Bed uh, by a fellow named Admiral uh, uh, McRaven. It's a wonderful book. Um, I mean, it wasn't written when I was a young person, but uh, if it had been, I, I, I would, you know, I would have, as soon as I could have read that, I would have read it. Another great one is called uh, The Last Lecture by Randy Pouch. And again, that one wasn't available when I was young. But I mention those two because uh, those are two of the books that I give to young people uh, when, when they're saying like, you know, 
you know, how can I get started being my best self? And I'll say, well, mm. step one, read these books, you know. Mm. Uh, great recommendations. I haven't read both of them, so I'll definitely check them out. Um, and what is the one yeah, habit I, by you the wish? Way, yeah. By the way, I, I recommend them to young people partly because they're short. They're very short books. <laughs> yeah, so even for anyone who's listening and you're struggling to read or, you know, struggling to get into books, yeah, great recommendation. You heard that they are short books. Yeah. And what about the habit? I guess uh, if, you know, I've always been a night owl. I stay up way too late and then I'm so tired in the morning. And when mm. I was a little kid, I used to get up in the morning and think, tonight I'm going to go to bed early. Uh, but, but I don't think I've ever gotten the habit of uh, early to bed. Now, a lot of times I have to get up early because I'm an adult and I have responsibilities, you know. Mm. But, uh, but, but I, I wish I could get to bed earlier. Hmm, interesting, because that's something that I struggle with as well. Um, in ter- you know, sleeping early. I know I'm going to wake up early, but can I sleep early enough to have enough hours of sleep so that I have enough energy to get a- to get going? So interesting to see that you know that's something that you struggle with as well. Yeah, and and, and when you're young, you can get away with it better. You know, my grandmother lived to be almost 101, and hmm. she used to say that she only needed three hours of sleep a night. And so I used to think, well, gosh, okay, so if she sleeps three hours instead of eight hours, that means she gets an extra, you know, 15 or 1600 hours a year. And then times 100, you know, she, she lived, it's like as if she lived to be 170. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, with all the waking hours, if we, if we put them together, yeah. Exactly. Well, I don't think but, I can do but, that, definitely. Well, my problem is as I'm getting older, I'm, 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 I'm running out of steam. So I feel I need to be getting more sleep. And I think I just, you know, Ben Franklin said, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And um, I just, I believe him. I just don't do it. Yeah, I think that's a struggle of a lot of, a lot of people. Um, yeah, but getting enough sleep is definitely should be up there um, in everyone's list. And then what's the one value that you will not compromise no matter the cost? I mean, I could think of a lot of values I wouldn't compromise no matter the cost. But I guess um, allegiance to my family, uh, I would never compromise. Um, I always say my first value is allegiance to my faith. Um, Mm. But sometimes I think like, well, if somebody wanted me to uh, swear blasphemy or or, or disclaim my faith in God in order to protect my family, I would still believe, but, you know, I figure God, God doesn't need me. I need God. So maybe I, <laughs> may, you know, so I might, I might blaspheme or, or, or disclaim my faith in God to protect my family, but I figure God would know that I didn't mean it and, 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 and I'd be okay, you know, cause I need God. That God is, doesn't need me. That is an interesting way of looking at that um, because I think, <laughs> it's the same for me where, you know, um, my commitment to my faith is very, very important to me. And I always think of that situation. What if you have to choose that, right? That and your family, whether it's your partner or whether you're your children, like what happens in that situation as well, right? Um, But yeah, interesting way of looking at it. Now, Having worked for many, you know, for as long as you have, having lived for as long as you have, I'm sure you've had your, you know, enough fair share of um, uh, failures. 
Can Definitely. you tell us Definitely. one failure that you're most grateful for? I mean, I think at the time of a failure, I'm never grateful. Uh, you know, I'm always, I'm always frustrated. Um, I think every time I've gotten punched hard in the head, I did not like it. But I'm glad I know I can get hit in the head without being knocked unconscious and that I can get back up. Um, I, I used to work on political campaigns, and I hated losing. Uh, but there's nothing like losing to realize that, gee, you know, uh, you still learn important skills. You still build relationships with people who uh, you value. You still collect proof of your ability to add value. Um, I mean, I guess I have failed um, at different times. I think, you know, I wish I had written a better book. One of the things about writing 21 books is you know, some of them aren't that good. <laughs> and, uh, mm. but, but then, you know, I, I, I'll write a second edition and it's better. Uh, a third mm. edition and, and maybe it's even better. Uh, one time early on after I, my first book came out, I got invited to go speak to GE, right? And Jack mm. Welch, the famous... Uh, well, uh, well, he was still the CEO. He was the CEO. Yeah, he, he, he invited me. His, I get a call, you know, Mr. Welch would like you to come speak to his leadership team. And I was like, really? You know, I was 27 or 28 years old, you know, hmm. and, I, and, and, and then, but I didn't really know how to give a speech. I had written a book, but so I went there and I'm in the pit, which is this auditorium, very famous auditorium in Crotonville. New York, which is where GE's training center is. And I'm, I'm standing in the pit and I started talking and pretty soon I ran out of stuff to say. Oh, wow. And I just, I just started winging it and it was, Ben, it wasn't good. I mean, and, and there are all these like shark, like, uh, executives, right. Who are looking at you. Well, they started like catcalling and interrupting and and, and then one of the guys stood up in the middle of the room and said, you know what, let's take a break. And, um, and, and I was so embarrassed and I was there with two guys. We were there by, by car and um, I was there with two uh, of the earliest people who worked in my business. And, I, and they said, what do you want to do? I said, let's get out of here. And we ran <laughs> away. We left. And, uh, and it was so embarrassing now, can I say I'm glad that happened? I mean, I guess I'm not. I mean, it was 27 years ago. I can finally tell the story. Uh, it, it definitely made me a better person because it made me more humble and uh, it made me practice a lot more. Um, can I say I'm glad that happened? I don't know. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, but 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 look, you know, I think. Um, uh, it, it's pretty rare that you have a spectacular failure that's all failure. It does happen. It does happen. That was a perfect example. That was a spectacular failure. Um, and, and I don't see a whole lot of upside to that one. But, yeah, that is wow. I mean, I can just imagine being in that situation. For any speaker, that's like the worst nightmare to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and I never told people that for years. I would just say, well, Jack Welch was my very first client. 
And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but never see how exactly it went down. Yeah, wow. well, Mr. Welch was kind enough to give me a second chance, and I did work for for GE after that. But uh, it, it was awkward, and um, you know. But I find like most experiences, uh, I can always think of how they could have gone better. And I do think that tuning into the failure part of any activity is just about trying to get better. It's about continuous improvement. Um, mm. So, although I have written. That if you have a 1% chance of success, you better get busy failing because you have to fail 99 times before you succeed. Um, but that looks better on paper than it feels in real life. Yeah. Uh, those are 99 painful moments as well. <laughs> so Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, in, in, in the book, The Art of Being Indispensable, you know, you talk about um, this idea of shared services. Uh, you say your job is shared services. So what do you mean when you say this? I, it, you know, in today's complex organizations, um, we all have to rely on cross-functional partners in other departments, in other parts of the business. Uh, usually they're internal, sometimes they're external vendors. Um, and so in, in, in today, especially in a large, complex, technically integrated, uh, especially global business, uh, where mm. it, 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 the business has to be good at so many things, right? Let's say the business has to be good at designing uh, uh, complex pro products. Uh, well, okay, you also have to be good at the, the technical research and then the design. And then you have to be good at transferring to production. Then you have to be good at manufacturing. Uh, in the manufacturing process, you have to be good at quality control. Let's say it's a medical device. Well, there are all kinds of regulatory constraints. Uh, then uh, you, you have to be plugged into your sales and marketing because, um, uh, well, what if we're making something that people don't want? Uh, you have to mm. be plugged into your accountants because you have to make sure you're keeping the cost of goods sold below a certain level so that you don't go through all this trouble and then make a product that you can't sell for enough to make a profit. So because, yeah. and, and on and on and on, right? So, so, so because of, of the complexity of, of most enterprises, uh, we all have to rely on each other all over the organization. Uh, the, 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 the research and development people have to be in touch with the marketing and sales people so they know what the customers want. Um, uh, the, the research and development people have to be in touch with the regulatory folks so they know what they're allowed to make. Uh, we have to be talking to the engineers so that, and the engineers have to be talking with the production folks. So, hey, what if we design a product that is so hard to build it's, it, that it doesn't make any sense? And then, and then the production people have to be talking with the logistics people because what if we produce a product that's too hard to ship, it's too delicate, or it's mm. too big, or it's too small? Or, so, so because of all of that, because of the complexity of business. By the way, this is true of a restaurant, it's true of a retail store, it's true of an accounting firm, it's true of a mm. mining company. It's uh, Most businesses now are so complex that we have to be good at a lot more things than I can be good at, you can be good at, so we have to rely on each other. And as a result of that, uh, most people's jobs are getting a lot more complicated and a lot more difficult. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a good answer. Um, now, 
to become indispensable, you know, uh, to become the go-to person, right? To become that kind of person, yet accomplish your duties that, you know, you're contracted to accomplish. Time becomes a very scarce resource. So how do you develop the intelligence, I guess, um, of knowing what to say yes to and what to say no to? You know, how, how do you decide between the two? Because I think this is something that you highlight as well in the book, right? Um, the yeses yeah, and the noes. Yeah, there's a whole chapter about that. I mean, because look, a lot of people, they think, well, the way to become a go-to person is you just say yes to everyone and everything. Right. Mm -hmm. That, you, you know, you're I'm really good at what I do. I'm a really hard worker. I've got a great attitude. And so if somebody comes to me and asks me for something, I want to say yes. Right. I want you to like me. I want you to come back. I want to get a good reputation with you. Right. The worst thing in the world is I don't. Wow. You want to give me an opportunity to add value. You're coming to me. You're going to me. I don't want to say no. What if, what if I say no and you never come back? What if I say no and you think I'm avoiding work? What if I say no and you go to someone else and then they become your go-to person? You know, what about me? Um, mm. but, but, but the problem is if you say yes to everyone and everything, then you end up being overcommitted, right? Mm. You, you, if, if, if you overpromise, you end up being overcommitted. There's only 168 hours in a week. Um, if you do what we were talking about earlier and you sleep 56 of them, which, of course, probably neither you nor I do, but let's say you sleep 56 of them, that leaves you 112 hours. You know, even if you worked every single hour, you run out of time. And if you don't rest and if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't do karate or boxing or yoga or whatever, um, then, 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 uh, then you're not going to be at your best. So you can only work so much. And uh, so you got to use that time really wisely. And uh, I always say to people, you know, the, the, the pain of saying no in the short term is a whole lot better than the pain of saying yes and then disappointing somebody who has relied upon you. Remember, when you say yes, you're making a commitment. So some people, they say yes in order to get rid of the conversation right now or in order to please a person in the present. But you got to think a little bit ahead, right? Because you will be known first and foremost for your yeses. If you deliver, you have a great reputation. If you say yes and you don't deliver, people will remember that a whole lot more than they remember you saying, no, I can't. No, I'm not allowed to. Uh, no, I shouldn't. Or, hmm, not yet. Not yet. Or, um, hmm, I need more information before I say yes. Yes is a commitment. I always tell people, here's how you know you should say yes. If you know exactly what to do, you know exactly how to do it, you know exactly when you're going to do it, and you're not going to displace something that's of higher value. Those are the criteria. So uh, otherwise, you don't have to say no, but you can say, I'm not sure, not yet. I need to gather more information. Um, but look, the, the, you know, there's only 168 hours in a week, any way you slice it. And, and the number one thing that people do that burns up 
extra time is they create unnecessary problems or they fail to avoid unnecessary problems. That's the number one thing you can do to help yourself and others. Be somebody who avoids unnecessary problems and helps others avoid unnecessary problems. That's a starting point. And and when you say yes, when you say yes, and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to do it, you don't know when you're going to do it, or you're going to have to back burn or something else, if you say yes to please in the short term, you are creating an unnecessary problem down the road. Wow, powerful. Uh, And I think this is all in line with what you say as well, right? Decisions about yes and no are all about opportunity cost. Um, Yeah, opportunity cost. That's what it's all about, right? So opportunity cost is, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, what are you going to not do? Hmm. And now when I was reading this, right, where this idea of really focusing on the understanding um, the few yeses you're going to say yes to, but also most importantly, you know, always um, not shying away from saying the no. Uh, it reminded me of this book by Shonda Rhimes, um, the creator of, I think, Grey's Anatomy and um, a few other shows. Uh she has the book called The Year of Yes, right? Where she essentially speaks about how saying yes has transformed her life. And of course, considering how successful she is in the entertainment world, um, it's easy to believe, you know, her saying that yes has transformed her life. Now, exploring that line of thought, how can we develop, I guess, the skill of saying the right yes and the strategic yes, and maybe you've already highlighted that as well. Um, the yes that is like full of potential in a sense, the yes that will make you the go-to person, right? Because you gave a bit of a framework there of, you know, how to say yes, um, but how do we say now the strategic yes? Let's say, you know, a few requests have come your way and they all check out in terms of, you know, you know how do you can do them, you know, you, Maybe you do have the time to do them at that in that particular moment, but how do we say yes to more strategic, you know, requests, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. So to, I always say yes is where all the action is, right? So you need no, you need no. Every good no frees up time for a better yes. But yes is where all the action is. I mean, if all you have in your repertoire is no, then you know you're not doing anything, right? So, yeah. uh, and, and, and the beauty of yes is you're responding to someone else's need, someone else's want, someone else's request, right? So, so uh, it, it, the best way to use your time and energy is to add value for someone else. Mm. Uh, and, and, and how do you know if you're adding value? Well, they asked you for something, Right. So, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a great way in. And I think, yes, is where uh, all the magic in, in, in human life really happens. Yes, uh, no is only necessary to make room for better yeses. Um, but, but look, um, you can't do everything for everyone. So some people, they say yes to the things they enjoy. Uh, and then the value add there is, well, I'm going to have so much fun doing that thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people... Uh, They say yes, because uh, this is something that is going to be a time factor, right? So remember I said there's only 168 hours in a week. Nobody's making Mm -hmm. any more of them. But you can manufacture time. 
And the way you manufacture time is by uh, avoiding unnecessary problems, identifying problems quickly and solving them, uh, making good plans about resource needs, uh, helping people go in the right direction. All of those things create time later. Uh, another way that you can create time is doing the right things in the right order, right? So, uh, for example, uh, if, if, if somebody is uh, in distress physically, well, you better check and make sure that they are getting enough air th into their airways, right? Because if you're checking mm. everything else, but you don't check the airway, you're doing it in the wrong order. You got to make sure they can breathe, right? And then mm. you got to make sure that they that check their pulse. You got to make sure of a few things first. Or, or if you're making bread, let's say you're making dinner and you're making bread. Well, uh, you better uh, uh, make the dough first because it takes time for the dough to rise. Right. So, so there's lots of things that you have to do in the right order. Doing things in the right order is another way to manufacture time. Another really high level. So I call all of these time factories or high leverage uses of time. Another high leverage use of time is if, if, if you're keeping someone else from doing something, someone else is ready. They've got their time ready to give but they need something from you to keep going, right? That, that's a really important thing to do first because then you get them going. You, 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 you avoid slowing down someone else. But these are all examples of mm. what I call high leverage time. Mm. So the first thing you want to do is make sure, another example is fixing your tool. Let's say you stop and fix your tool so that you make sure you have the proper tool, right? Uh, if, 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 if you're, if you're uh, um, uh, in a boat, you know, you better uh, fix the leak first because that's a high leverage activity, right? Mm. If the building's on fire, you better put the fire out. Uh, if the yeah. building's not on fire, then you should focus on fire prevention. All of those are high leverage activities. Exercise, because then you're going to live longer. Right. Mm. Take care of your significant other because then you won't have the heartbreak and time consuming difficulty of a breakup. <laughs> right. These are all high leverage activities. Um, but but there's a simple formula. Right. Which is, um, uh, is this one of your specialties? Right. And and is it uh, is it something you're really good at doing? Uh, is it an important thing to do? Um, and then I always suggest, you know, look for the high leverage activities, make sure you do things in the right order, make sure you're not mm. slowing someone else down. Um, and, and the most high leverage activity is avoid unnecessary problems and help others avoid unnecessary problems. I know that's a complicated approach. In the book, I have it down to a, a, a formula, you know, and uh, I can share the formula too, if you want. Yeah, definitely. Go for, go for it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the number one trick is paying more attention to the ask. When someone's making a request of you, pay attention, slow down, ask questions, take notes. So the first thing you need to do is make sure you understand what's being asked, and then make sure the person who's asking understands what they're asking. So you have to make sure you understand and they understand. 
Uh, and sometimes the person who's asking you doesn't really understand what's involved. Uh, so the first thing you have to do is try to ask enough questions of the ask that you really understand what, what the person is asking and make sure you help the other person understand. Uh, then the second uh, uh, step is, okay, is this your, one of your specialties or not? If it's not one of your specialties, then you have to say, hey, I might be able to do this, but it's not one of my specialties. So I'm going to have to build in some learning time, right? And because mm -hmm. I'm going to have to build in some learning time, I want to let you know that. And if it's not one of my specialties, I might not know exactly how long it's going to take because I might not know exactly what's involved. So be really aware of, you know, you, you might think you know. But if it's not one of your specialties, you better do a little more uh, in investigation. But the beauty of paying attention to the ask, you ask mm. questions and you take notes. You ask questions and you take notes. You ask questions and you take notes. That does three things. Number one, it shows the person who's asking that you respect them and their request. You're paying attention. Mm. The, number, the second thing is it helps you start to make a good decision and understand what you know and what you don't, right? You're slowing down and seeing, do I really have all the information? Um, and, and, and so it's going to help you make a better decision ultimately, but it's also going to show you that um, whether you're ready to make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the third thing is ultimately it will lead you to gather the right information and to make a more uh, diligent decision. So is it your specialty or is it not? Um, make sure you've gathered all the information. And then, look, if I can't do it, that's an easy no. If I'm not allowed to do it, that's an easy no. The hard part is, should I do it? Hmm. And if it's not my specialty, well, gosh, that's a chance for me to learn how to do something new. If it is my specialty, gee, I know I can do that very well, very fast. I know exactly how long it's going to take. I know exactly when I'm going to do it. Uh, and, and so then it's a question of, uh, do you have to back burn or something else? And then, you know, the, the real key is make sure your yeses are really good. You know, sometimes it's, yes, I'd love to do that for you. I can do that for you uh, in March 2024. And then the person's going to be like, oh, yeah, well, I need it next week. So thanks anyway. <laughs> right? But that sometimes that's the answer. You know, sure, I can do that. Sure, I, I'm allowed to do that. Sure, I'd love to do that. It's just that I have two years worth of stuff I'm going to have to do first. Before I get to that. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, that's a, yeah, thank you for that framework. Yeah, I think that will be definitely useful uh, to me personally and to the listeners as well. Now, there's a powerful practice uh, for go-tos that you speak of in the book as well uh, of priority, sequence, and execution. And some of it you've already spoken about. Uh, priorities meaning what's most important, sequence in what order. You've just mentioned that a bit. And then execution, how to get it done. Um, what happens when we skip one of these three elements um, in this journey of becoming a go-to person? What's the cost there? Yeah, so if you're not always being rigorous about priority, what ends up happening is you do things that are less important. And then 
sometimes when people do things that are less important, it's just the squeaky wheel, right? It's the person who's standing there making noise who gets your Mm. time and energy. Sometimes it's my desire. I love doing A and B, but then I never get to C and D. Right. Sometimes it's it's because um, it's what 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 I sometimes call productive procrastination. That mm-hmm. uh, the thing I really should be doing is the one thing I'm not doing, but at least I'm doing something else. Um, so if you don't, if you're not rigorous about priorities, um, then uh, what happens is you get a lot done, but they're not the most important things. And the thing about priorities is. It's not just what you're going to do first, second, third, and fourth. The thing about priorities is if there's not enough time, some things are not going to get done at all. And if things are not going to get done at all, you better make sure that it's the least important things, right? That's the thing about priorities. Uh, mm-hmm. And you better make sure your priorities are aligned with your boss or with your customers or, or, or you, you have to have a good anchor. You can't just be thinking about that in a vacuum. Uh, who's depending on you? Uh, sequence is critical. So I said earlier, you know, you got to make the dough because sometimes it takes time for the dough to rise. Um, if if uh, uh, if if someone else is playing is waiting for you, that's a really important sequence. Um, if if um, uh, you know things have to be done in a certain order, sometimes they don't have to be done in a certain order. It's just that doing them in a certain order is much more efficient, right? Mm. So, so, but doing things in the right order is a way, is a way to um, make sure you're doing the most important things, but, but it's also a way to, to make things go a lot better, and it's a way to make sure you're not slowing people down. And then execution is everything. I mean, what people, so often people are so busy, but they're not getting anything done. And, uh, you know, these are people who are always talking about, I'm always juggling. I'm always juggling. Well, if you're always mm. juggling, you're going to drop the ball. And, uh, and, and the problem with juggling and dropping the ball is you never decide which ball to drop, right? Because you're trying mm. to keep all the balls in the air. So when you're juggling and you drop the ball, what happens is it just everything goes, you know, you drop a ball, then all the balls drop usually. Uh, so, um, uh, you gotta make time to execute. Uh, and, and, and the, the, these, there are a lot of people who think they multitask, but there's no such thing as multitasking. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just, that's called task shifting. And when you're interrupted, uh, you, you it's very inefficient because you have to pull your attention out of what you're doing, tune into a new thing, try to pay attention to that. Then you have to get back into what you were doing before. That's, that's, it's, it's the least efficient way to execute. The most efficient way to execute is to concentrate uh, on a sequence of activities uh, for 45 minutes or so at a time. So uh, the, when, when we're teaching people to uh, increase their execution, what I tell people is you need bigger chunks of time and smaller chunks of work. So, so you, you, you want to have um, bigger chunks of time and smaller chunks of work. Focus, execute, focus, execute, focus, execute. It, everyone has a to-do list. What I tell people is if you've got 45 minutes ahead of you, 
you need to have a do list. What are the one, two, three things you can do in those 45 minutes? Hmm. Um, now, you speak about influence as well in the book. And one of the four tactics of you know, real influence is be the person other people do not want to disappoint. Now, fear of disappointing someone can sometimes pave way for other fears as well, right? Um, yet it's been spoken that, you know, innovation thrives in a space where there is psychological safety. So how do we achieve, you know, I guess, a standard uh, or expectations for high standards while at the same time maintaining um, grace for mistakes and failures that will in inevitably happen? You know, you want people to perform at a certain level, you want people to come through at a certain level, but you know they're going to make mistakes. So how do you create that synergy between, you know, um, these are the standards, um, but you're going to make mistakes. And, but, you know, when that happens, there's enough grace to sort of like shelter you um, in this attempt, you know. So how do we create the balance between the two? Because if you become the person people do not want to disappoint, then that, you know, creates that expectation that, you know, of high performance high quality work, but people will, f they will make mistakes. People will fail like we all do. Um, so how do you, how, how do we create that balance uh, between the two? Or maybe not so much yeah, balance, but rather the, the synergy between uh, yeah, accountability and grace, um, expectations and grace. Oh, I love that. Uh, and using grace as a management concept is brilliant. I love that. And I'm going to borrow that from you. I promise I will cite you. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's brilliant. And so I think it's a different question if you're trying to do that for yourself as a performer, uh, as, as yourself, as um, somebody who's working on tasks, responsibilities, and projects for someone else. What standard do you hold yourself to? Uh, uh, how do you make room for yourself to have enough courage to execute and realize, hey, I might make some mistakes, right? So, but, but if you're on the receiving end of someone else's work, if you're the one who is either in charge and giving an assignment, or you're the one who's a cross-functional partner who's making a request and relying on someone else, and they don't want to disappoint me, and how do I hold them to a high standard while leaving room for them to make mistakes? Is that the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, so I think the, the, the first thing is always focus on solutions and expectations don't need to be a burden. Expectations can be a set of instructions. Uh, expectations don't need to be one way. Expectations can be a matter of dialogue. Uh, so, okay, uh, here's the goal. Uh, here's the outcome I'm looking for. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is it clear? Right? So I'm asking you for, the, so I can try to make my ask more clear. Uh, I want to make sure you understand. Okay. Now, what steps are you going to follow? How are you going to do that? Right? Uh, so, okay, here's the outcome. Well, let, let, let's drill down. What are the parameters of that? Gee, how long do you suppose that's going to take? Do you know exactly how to do that? Is that something you've done before? Hey, do you have a plan? Let's make a plan. 
uh, or, oh, this is something you've done before. Gosh, do, do you have standard operating procedures? You've done this before, huh? Uh, do you have a checklist? Could I see the checklist? Hey, what else do you have on your plate right now? What are the other tasks, responsibilities, and projects that might get in the way? What can I do to help you help me? Uh, is there anything I can do to help you help me? Um, what, what, you, uh, what, you know, um, uh, can, can, I, uh, can I answer any additional questions? Can I, uh, am I giving you what you need? Right. So, so the more when I'm asking somebody to do something for me, the mm -hmm. more I focus on making my request clear, spell it out, break it down, make sure they're with me, make sure mm -hmm. they're doing some of the talking too. make sure and, 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 make, and make sure you're asking them, do you know what to do? Do you know how to do it? Do you know when you're going to do it? What's your plan? What can I do to help you help me? Right. Help me help you help me help you. How can mm -hmm. I help you help me help you help me help you help me? Right. And so on. So I'm exaggerating a little bit. But the more you focus up front on the expectations, the solutions, the more likely that person is going to be to succeed. And then it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. You can check in with them halfway. How's it going? Uh, have you made any progress? Are you running into any problems? Is there anything I can do to help you now? Right. And then maybe uh, halfway from there. Hey, how's it going now? Right mm. now, you, you're not badgering them. You're just saying, I'm trying to help you succeed. Now, look, what if they fail anyway? What if they fail anyway? Well, you could mm. point fingers. But the first thing you should ask yourself is, what more could I have done to help you succeed? And how can we make sure this goes even better next time? Um, that, that's good. Uh, and now, there's something that you mentioned as well that I thought was very, very interesting um, because considering the reality of how we all operate in the workplace, um, many of us, when you look at the relationships, if you ask a lot of people, they'll probably have a best friend at the workplace. And it's because, you know, we spend most of our life in the office. Yet in the book, you say, when I say build the relationship, I am not talking about finding best friends at work. Our research shows that having best friends at work, especially if that person is your leader or direct report, it will likely complicate your working relationship. And so when I read this, I wondered what kinds of relationships should we aim to build with our colleagues? Yeah, I mean, and look, I realize if you work with people for days, weeks, months, or years, you might become friends. Uh, mm. but, 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 but as I say in the book, that's a complication, right? If, you're, if you have power in relation to someone else's work and their livelihood, and this is how they, they, they feed their family, that's awkward, right? If you're their friend. So, um, but it happens. You just have to be really careful about it. Uh, but, but the kind of relationships that work best are the ones that make the work go better. And mm. this is true whether you're friends or not. If things go wrong at work, things are going to go wrong in the friendship. If things go wrong at work, things are going to go wrong in that relationship. 
So the, 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 the best uh, relationships to build at work are the relationships that make the work go better. Uh, so that you talk about the work, you spell out expectations clearly, you sometimes uh, remind each other of broad performance standards, remind each other of mission, values. Sometimes you have to remind each other of the big picture things. Uh, other times you just have to be patient enough to have thorough enough conversations about the work that needs to get done so you help each other succeed. And when things don't go right, that you have productive, that you don't finger point and blame and be frustrated mm. and angry, right? But instead you talk about, hey, how can we make this go better? And, and you have to authentically say, what could I have done better, right? Mm. Well, with a lot of people, when things go wrong at work, they think, what could you have done better? And uh, uh, when things go wrong at work, the first thing you should ask yourself is, what could I have done better? Hmm. Yeah, that's always a tough one. I mean, uh, especially when it comes to relationship building, it, it can, things can always get muddy. Uh, you're right in what you said. You know, if you're best friends and something goes off outside of work, that's going to creep into um, your relationship in the workplace. Um, it's kind of hard to draw lines when you have a very close relationship uh, with a person uh, compared to if you have a casual relationship, it's always easier to draw those lines. Now, yeah, you've, exactly. also spoke, you've also talked about this uh, you know, concept of um, go-to people being tightrope walkers. And I, and, and, and I thought this was a powerful analogy because um, I don't know how they do it. Whenever I watch, you know, on television and I'm like, I don't know how they do that. And, but, but you speak that, you know what, we, you know, if you want to become a go-to person in your workplace, you need to become a tightrope walker. And so in places where the culture is highly political, um, you know, within the hierarchy, there are different levels and different relationships, right? Um, there's your leader and then they have their own leader. And sometimes who people who work in a system where there's like a matrix-like system where you're reporting to multiple individuals or in multiple individuals are reporting to you, um, how, how do we practice this tightrope working in that kind of space? Yeah, and I, I, I think the first person you have to manage every day is yourself. And that sounds trite, but it is huge that you, you, you've got to, for one thing, you got to bring your best self to work. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to realize that whatever you're feeling on the inside, attitudes on the outside. So you've got to have a good professional demeanor. Uh, you, you've got to know what you're good at, uh, know how much available time you have. And what you're really trying to do all day, every day is look for tasks, responsibilities, and projects where you can add value. And you got to be really careful. If the building's on fire, you have to do that stuff first. Most people don't need to be told about that because mm. of the buildings. Are, but, but, but once you put the fire out, you got to say, I got to spend a bunch of time making sure there's not another fire. And so mm. you have to spend your time on uh, high leverage activities, priority sequence and execution, the, the, the short answer is manage yourself and try to serve others. And don't worry about the short term, except 
executing, executing, understand, execute, understand, execute. And, and, and then, but you're playing a longer game. You might disappoint somebody today, but in the long run, you're going to have a better track record, right? You want to be known as somebody who is professional, hardworking, good at what they do, has a good attitude. And when they say they're going to do something, they do it. When they say they're going to do something by a certain time, they do it. When they say they're going to do something, you know they're going to slow down and dot their I's and cross their T's. They're going to concentrate. They're going to focus. You know, so you got to know yourself, know what you're good at, know and, and be honest with yourself. First person you got to manage every day is yourself. Second person you have to manage every day is your boss. Third person you have to manage every day is anyone who reports to you. And if you've got any time left, right, then you worry about your cross-functional partners, your diagonal partners, people on the outside. Um, and by the way, when it comes to managing your boss, uh, the, 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 the trick is that you have enough conversations with your boss when things are not going wrong, that you already know what your boss values. You already know what your boss's priorities are. You already know what your boss's ground rules are. You know what your boss is likely to say, right? So, so if nine out of 10 times, 99 out of 100 times, you already know what your boss would say. Uh, then, uh, then you know you just got to manage yourself. You got to manage your boss. If if you already know ninety nine times out of hundred what your boss would say, you are ten steps ahead. And anyone who reports to you, you need to be in dialogue enough so ninety nine times out of hundred they know what you would say. And then you you, you and then you just. All day, every day, try to do as much of the right thing in the right order and execute. Uh, all you can do is manage yourself. Play the long game. At the end of the week, be able to show, look at all the value I've added. At the end of the month, at the end of the year, play the long game. Hmm. I like that. Uh, yeah, that was quite uh, useful. Thank you so much. Um, now, I want to slightly shift the conversation. Um, I know we're drawing to a close of our conversation, um, but I would like to touch on two things because uh, another area that you've written uh, about is this area of millennials. And, and I'm quite passionate uh, with millennials because I am a millennial as well. And so it, it was very, it was quite fascinating reading your book uh, and seeing your insights. Now, of course we live in a different region and there could be some differences uh, in terms of the insights. Um, but I think principally a lot of what you said still applies and is quite relevant um, even to people who live in the African continent um, and particularly in my country, Tanzania. So I would like to touch on two things because there's one statement that you make in the book that I thought was quite powerful where you say, millennials are the most high maintenance workforce in the history of the world. Um, and likely to be most high performing. Now, I'm laughing when I say that because I have a client who is bringing me on board technically 
to really help shape strategy so that it becomes an organization that is attractive to this particular generation okay. um, because of just the high maintenance nature of millennials. So what does this statement mean to you and based on your experience and uh, in your work with millennials? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, let's remember that the oldest millennials today are 44 years of age. So they're not even the youngest people in the workplace anymore. Now, the youngest millennials are uh, uh, 26. So a lot of people, they're still using the term millennial, but they may be talking about the post-millennials, 25, 4, the Gen 3, Z, three, right? one year olds, yeah. right, Gen Z, um, the post-millennials. Um, and in fact, in, of course, in, in East Africa, where you are, uh, the population is substantially younger than it is in other yes. parts of the world. So there's lots of young folks. And, and my view is that, um, and based on our research, uh, young people today, you know, they've grown up in an environment where they have access to more information about everything instantly, all the time. So uh, every single thing, uh, there's no way you can convince them that there's one way to think about or do anything. If you tell them, here's how we do it, they say, oh, shh. Here, on my handheld supercomputer says there's another way. Oh, your way was just rendered obsolete seven minutes ago, right? Uh, so they, they just, they know they have access to so much information uh, that um, they, they, you can't convince them that there's one way to think about or do anything. So that is one of the reasons why they're so high maintenance. Uh, they know they're in great demand. And uh, uh, they know that especially those who are educated or have technical skills uh, or are certified to do uh, certain tasks, responsibilities, and projects, they know they're in much greater demand than supply. Uh, so they, they, they know that they have more negotiating power. So here they, they, they can find an infinite number of uh, options at their fingertips uh, for any question uh, they know they're in greater demand than they are in supply. This is high maintenance. Uh, typically, they know what kind of life they want to have. They have an, an image of what kind of life they want to have. And what they're trying to do is shape a career around the kind of life they want to have. That's high maintenance. Um, the, the beauty is that they also um, are very execution focused. Uh, they they want to do a whole bunch of work very well, very fast, and then go home or do whatever they want to do. Uh, so there's a huge amount of potential. What's the number one thing people care about other than money? More control over their own schedule. The number two thing they care about other than money is uh, supportive leadership. Number three is location and workspace. Number four is task choice. What tasks, responsibilities, and projects will I get to work on? Number five is learning opportunities. Uh, and, and so that's the stuff they want. Uh, by the way, people say, oh, young people today don't care about money. Uh, yes, they do. They care about money. Uh, so anyone who says they don't care about money, I think, what color is the sky on your planet? Because they care about money. Uh, but mm. what they really want to know is not just how much am I going to get paid on day one, but what do I need to do to earn more? And when you uh, put that all together, 
how do you build a culture that's based on high performance and high reward, high accountability and high flexibility? I think you Mm. cannot have generous rewards and flexibility without high performance and high accountability. So, uh, but, 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 you know, these are the things they want and they're in such great demand. Sometimes managers will say to me, oh, well, how do I, how do I get these young people to work? Well, they keep telling you what they want. <laughs> you know, mm. oh, they make these unreasonable demands. Yes, that's how to get them to work hard, right? Mm. Oh, this one has, you know, doesn't want to work on Thursdays. This one wants to bring their dog to work. This one says, well, I need to get a, a, a big bonus if I get this done early. Well, yes, good. They're telling you that's how to motivate them. Just ask I think them. I, saw, I, think, I think I read a story in your book that was hilarious, but I quite I, I got it um, because I, I, I see myself sometimes when I go for a run in the morning. I, I live quite close to the ocean, and so sometimes I would just run, you know, closer to the ocean so I could see if the tide is, you know, full, and and then um, so I can, you know, after the run i could just go to the ocean and you know swim or do something and i read the story in your book where you say i think there's a story of a guy who asked his leader if he could go to work later that day because he wants to go surf because yeah 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 and and i thought that was hilarious but this i you know this need to live a much more fulfilling and meaningful life and a focus more on getting things done rather than you know, being at a certain place at a certain set time, um, that level of flexibility as well is something that um, is on high demand for a lot of millennials, I think. And COVID, of course, escalated that where now people, some people expect, you know, this hybrid type of work where they can do this, uh, where they can work from home or they can come to the office whenever they feel like it, whenever it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, just think, all these people, everyone was saying, well, you can't do that from home. And over the last two years, they have demonstrated, oh, yes, I can. Hmm. Yeah, now, something else that you talk about, and this will be my last question. Um, And I quote here, um, you say that millennials don't look at a large established organization and think, I wonder where I'll fit in your complex picture. Rather, they look at an employer and think, I wonder where you will fit in my life story. And I think this you've captured this beautifully, right? Where it's not so much how can I be um, this screw in this larger uh, operating system, um, but how can you fit into my life? How can you fit into my plans? How can you fit into my journey? Um, so how should this reality really change how leaders, especially high level leaders, right? Uh, who in most organizations, especially hierarchical organizations, they are the ones who shape policies, um, and, 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 and whatnot. How should this change how they approach millennials really, um, altogether, you know, not just practice wise, but also philosophically in terms of what needs to change in the leader's, um, mind, to, so that they can create a space where both of them thrive and um, they fulfill the organization's mission and vision. And it's a win yeah, for and, everyone. And, and look, my view is it's not just about the millennials. It's not even just about Generation Z. It's about everybody. People of 
all ages now are in great demand. People of all ages now uh, want to have more flexibility. People of all ages are thinking more and more like free agents. And so what I tell business leaders is, what is the business advantage you're really gaining from continuing to pretend that everybody is a long-term, full-time, on-site, uninterrupted, exclusive employee who works in a particular place during certain hours and and Mm. that you have this long-term organization chart. Like that probably no longer describes what's actually happening. So what Mm. is the business advantage of pretending, right? Most business leaders, they don't realize they're pretending that old-fashioned model still works. So I tell business leaders, good news, you don't have to break the model. The model's broken. You have Mm. to adapt to what's actually happening. So how flexible do you have to be? Exactly as flexible as you need to attract better people, motivate them to do more work better and faster, and keep them longer. That's how flexible Mm. you need to be. Oh, you're in the business of getting a whole bunch of work done very well, very fast, all day long in an organized way that can be calibrated, can be uh, integrated with other uh, uh, um, partners, and can be actuarialized in terms of cost. So what? that's what you need. You need to gear your systems so you have access to better talent that you drive better performance, and that you keep people longer. Uh, But don't worry, you don't have to break the system. The system's broken. What you need is to build a new system that's as flexible as the workforce is. Hmm. Um, Wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I highly recommend, uh, you know, for anyone who's listening to, yeah, read both your books that we've touched on today, really, and, and I would encourage yeah. them to read all your other books as well. Uh, and I think the easiest way I would say is to just just Google. I will put the link uh, links on the show notes. So in case you're using a platform that that is hard to do, and I don't know which platforms, but I think most platforms you can actually click through the links on the show notes. Um, but if that's something that's not possible for you, uh, you can just Google uh, Bruce Telgan, which is B-R-U-C-E-T-U-L-G-A-N. Uh, and I think that will bring you all the links that you would need to. I think one of the top um, results there on the first page will be uh, an Amazon link. And then where you can go there and then just you know see all the different books and um, yeah, oh, that, buy that, whichever that, one that, is... That's really kind of you. And Rainmaker Thinking is our website. And we have lots of free stuff at Rainmaker Thinking. And hey, Ben, while I have you or while you have me, um, uh, may I ask, would you consider being a guest on my podcast? Yeah, definitely. That, that That would be an honor. Awesome. All right. Well, this is working out great. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Bruce. Um, This was, yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah. And I, by the way, um, your wife, right? Um, Because I think I I saw that on your profile that she, she won. Is it the Pulitzer Prize, right? That is true. My wife is an accomplished biographer. Her first book won the Pulitzer Prize. It was called The Most Famous Man in America. Her new book is called Madam. Uh, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the jazz age. And uh, 
look for the book, and and in a few years uh, you'll 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 be able to catch the TV show. I think. Oh, are they doing a Netflix? So I'm, I'm sure they're gonna. Uh, uh, you we're, know, we're, somebody's we're, gonna. We're, we're working on it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I read that. I was like, wow. First book Pulitzer Prize. I mean, that's like insane. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah congratulations tell me, tell me. to her. Thank you, thank um, you, thank you. Maybe she'll do your podcast. Hey, listen, um, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Uh, you're, you're a great interviewer, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, and to our dear listeners, thank you for listening. This has been the Why Lead Others podcast, and I am your host, Ben Oden. This has been the Why Lead Others podcast, brought to you by Why Lead Consultancy. Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.